It's fair to say there's a lot going on in the world at the moment and understandably this is translating into some economic uncertainty with high interest rates and difficult time for investment markets. So if you're wondering why is inflation high and how that might affect you if you are looking to invest or have a mortgage then today's episode is for you because we give a summary of how we got to where we are and also some pointers as to what you might do especially if you have a mortgage or are looking to start investing. If you're enjoying these episodes and finding them useful don't forget to subscribe because we release a new episode every single Tuesday and if you do get a minute to leave us a rating and review it helps other doctors to find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and let's get into today's episode. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr Ed Cantelow, a GP but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. Got my daughter running around a bit in the background but hopefully I'll be okay. Someone else is looking after her, don't worry. <laughs> not, not neglecting her. <laughs> Adds to the real life nature of a podcast. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the Medics Money podcast, Mr. Michael Harms. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Really good, thanks, Tommy. How are you? Yeah, it's been absolutely ages. You're like the OG podcast crew. I think episode 16 was the last time that you were on. And that was a super popular episode about why and how to get started with investing. But for those of you that aren't familiar with you, why are you qualified to talk about today's complex topic? Okay, so I'm a director and chartered financial planner of Medical in General, and we specialize in giving advice to medics on all things financial. Having been giving advice for over 14 years to your industry, have a really good understanding of what goes on for you guys. Obviously, we deal with investing, we look at protection, we look at mortgages, look at all of those things. And so hopefully I'm able to give you a good understanding of what's going on in the world right now and what that might mean for you personally. Yeah, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But there's lots of jargon and postnomials associated with financial advisors. So can you just explain, you said you're a chartered financial planner. That's right. So there are different degrees of qualification within our industry. The basic qualification is a diploma, and that is the minimum required now to be able to provide financial advice. But you could argue that I've then gone a step further and specialized in certain areas, and that's afforded me the ability to call myself chartered. So it's effectively there are very few exams you can take on top of this now. The only thing you can become is a fellow, but that just means that you've done a lot more academic work rather than actually anything else. Yeah. And of course, like all the financial advisors on Medics Money, you are completely independent and hopefully everybody realizes why that's incredibly important. We won't go over that again because I always get a few angry emails from not independent financial advisors when I do that, but totally independent, which is excellent for you 100%. and me and everyone. So last time we spoke, things have changed a bit and the last few years have been pretty tough. Like what's been happening with the economy in general and how's this, you know, impacted your clients' investments, mortgages and other stuff? Sure. I think it's safe to say that the last two and a half years have been unprecedented in what we've seen historically going on with the investment markets, interest rates, inflation amongst other things. So I thought it'd be quite useful just to really walk through what's actually happened over the last two and a half years, going back to sort of January, just prior to COVID, and then sort of the impact Brexit has had, 
back end of COVID and then how that's played out in our economy over the last couple of years. And then we can then sort of focus down on what that actually means personally. But I always think it's useful to look at it from a macro perspective and then sort of come down and look at it from an individual perspective. So two and a half years ago, pre-COVID, the good days, that was when we'd basically seen and we were coming off the back of an unprecedented growth phase for about 12 years. So the last recession that we had as a country was in 2008, which was the credit crisis. Now, some of your listeners may have been qualified and working during that time. Others, it may be a distant blip in their memory from when they were younger. 2008 was the last time we saw a recession. So it's probably best to actually describe what a recession is. So a recession in its technical term is a contraction in the UK economy over two consecutive quarters. So that's over a six month period. And that means that effectively the country is not growing, it's contracting. So we're not earning as much money, we're not building as many things, we're not selling as many things. And a recession is a natural thing that is cyclical. And invariably in the past, we've accepted or expected there to be a recession anywhere between five and 10 years on a normal cycle. And it's a way of resetting the clock. It's a way of resetting the economy because certain things get a little bit overinflated as time goes on. And we'll come on to how that actually works in a bit. But it's a way of resetting and then going again. And normally what happens is we are forced into a recession through interest rate rises. And that's what we're starting to see at the moment. So that's obviously something that's going to be quite pertinent to this topic and how it impacts people individually and why it means there's a reset. So 2008, that was the credit crisis. The banks imploded. And the government at the time, and we'll talk about the UK government, but this was worldwide, the UK government had to put their hand in their pocket to save the financial banking system. Because without that, effectively, the entire UK economy would have fallen apart and it would have been a cataclysmic situation. So they chucked loads of money in to shore up the system. But unfortunately, that meant that had a wider implication on businesses, their ability to borrow, their ability to operate. And there were large redundancies across the board. Lots of people lost their jobs. There was an impact on housing. So value of house prices dropped dramatically. People lost their houses. They were repossessed. It was a pretty awful situation. But off the back of that, we clawed our way back. The investment markets recovered very quickly. But actually what we felt as public individuals, it took about three or four years before we felt like we were back to some sort of normality. So that was quite a deep and long recession. But off the back of that, we then saw a prolonged period of growth. And this is where everyone has probably to a degree enjoyed a relatively harmonious and straightforward economy over that period of time. We've all had a good standard of living, hopefully, and we've been able to buy the things we want to do, and we've been able to carry on with life relatively carefree until we came to two and a half years ago. And we always thought there would be a recession coming at some point. There would be an event that would make that happen, but I don't think anyone was anticipating COVID. So we would classify that as a black swan event. It's one of those things rarely seen, and it comes out of left field. No one's expecting it. So COVID, understandably, transform the landscape. And what I just want to highlight is we're going to talk about this from an investment perspective. So there is an element of detachment from what's gone on in terms of obviously the human capital cost that we had in this whole scenario. So COVID stopped the economy dead. We all went home. We all worked from home. We didn't go out apart from to buy food. And effectively, the economy faltered. And we saw a sharp, sharp contraction in the UK economy. It was around about a 9% contraction. So literally, you can imagine 10% of our tax receipts disappeared. 10% of the money that was coming into the economy disappeared overnight. But because of government intervention, because of the furlough scheme, because of the support it gave to businesses, and then because of the way they were managing and releasing lockdowns and then obviously closing it down and so on. And then we finally had the vaccination 
program that was successful meant that people kept their jobs, that money was still being spent. People weren't going on holiday, though. And so they were sort of saving up money and there was a pent up demand. Now, it's important to understand that there's that pent up demand because that's what sort of caused us problems then over the next 12, 18 months. So we had a sharp, short contraction in the economy. We effectively had a recession. But it was a technical recession at that point because there wasn't really the feeling of impact of lost jobs and you know property prices going down. In fact, it had the complete opposite effect. As we came out of lockdown then, they wanted to turbocharge the economy. They wanted to recover it. And so instantly there was a stamp duty freeze, which fueled a huge increase in the property prices. There was the working from home scenario. So this doesn't really apply to the medical profession, but if you look at the rest of the economy, it had a, a very big impact. People were able to work from home. All of a sudden, technology came to the fore and flexible working really became a normal concept. And so the thought process of people being able to live in the countryside, but working in a city environment job and keeping those earnings was actually quite appealing to a lot of people. So for example, here in Devon, where we're based, Prices went through the roof. You know, you had price wars over properties that were going £100,000 over asking. It was just an absolutely crazy time. And all of this was off the back of a pent-up demand where people weren't able to spend their money. And so holidays went through the roof. The UK economy went through the roof. And we saw a 9% bounce off the back of it. So we almost gained back what we lost. But we've forgotten about the fact we have Brexit in here as well. So just before COVID, we left the European Union. And it's safe to say that... COVID probably meant that we didn't really see the full effect of what Brexit would have on our economy for 12 months. It was only when we started to really open up the economy and move again that we realised we had some issues. Now, when we talk about the effect of Brexit, it's obvious that it would have had an impact on our economy, but I do believe it was exacerbated by COVID. What I mean by that, and this is purely anecdotal evidence, there's no real sort of evidence behind this at the moment, but my thought process is that we were told that, you know, COVID is killing lots of people and obviously people were concerned about being with their loved ones. And I think if you were abroad in a foreign country at the time and you felt you wanted to get home to be with your loved ones, then probably you would have left the UK and gone back to another European country. So I think COVID probably exacerbated Brexit. But Brexit in its own right has caused us some of the issues we now have in terms of inflation. So when we started to open up again, there were no HGV drivers. There were no people to pick the harvest. There were no people to work within our manufacturing sectors. And there were no people to work in your sector as well. And so the knock-on effects have been dramatic. So what we've seen is an increase in inflation. And that started September last year. Up until September, things were relatively straightforward. We were around 3% on inflation. And whilst it was above the Bank of England target of 2%, we started to see that creep up. So just for clarification, inflation is the annual increase on the cost of goods and services. And they always talk about a basket of goods. So it's just a, a concept, basically. So if you had a basket of goods and you went into the shop and you know you bought some cheese, some milk, some bread, and they put other things in, what would have been the cost last year versus what would have been the cost this year? And the difference is the percentage, and that is seen as inflation. And you've got two ways of calculating inflation. One is the consumer price index, CPI, and the other one is the retail price index, RPI. And they're two different methodologies on how you calculate. One includes mortgages normally, and the other one doesn't. That's pretty much it. Now, your pensions are linked to CPI. So that's something just to bear in mind and probably something you've heard of on previous podcasts. So we started to see inflation rise from September last year. And that was down to the issues we've just mentioned about lack of employees out there. If there's a lack of employees, then we're all starting to chase the same number of people. 
And if we're all starting to chase the same number of people, we start having to pay people more because they have choice. And so we saw wage inflation. We saw wages grow faster and harder than we'd ever seen in the previous few years. So instantly, businesses have to pay more for their employees, and therefore they're going to pass those costs on to you, the consumer. So the cost of the things they're selling and providing will increase. So that's sort of one element. It was then exacerbated by COVID and the lack of components and availability of manufacturing and also logistics. So as a world, we have encouraged globalization and globalization has basically allowed us to get hold of items and manufacturing items very, very easily. And we know that it's on its way from China, India, or wherever it might be, and it will arrive here in the UK at a set point in time. It's like a well-oiled machine, but COVID had an impact on that because a lot of our manufacturing that perhaps has been done in China, they were closing down. That meant that the goods weren't coming from China, or for example, there was a lack of semiconductors. That was a big issue. And so there was just supply issues. And we've always worked in the UK for the last 30 years on something called a just-in-time solution, which is basically you don't have a warehouse full of widgets waiting to be used in your manufacturing process because you think to yourself, well, we're only going to keep two weeks worth of widgets because we know they're coming in on a boat from India or wherever it might be. So you then don't have money tied up in stock. That's the basic principle. But the fragility of our distribution system was proven in the COVID situation. We then had the Suez Canal blocked by one big boat. And bizarrely, that has huge consequences because there were like 300 boats that couldn't get through. So all of these things, you could argue, is an element of a perfect storm that has come together to exacerbate inflation. And the classic scenario of, well, if demand is outstripping supply, and we've seen that with cars, dramatically with cars. So that's why secondhand car prices have gone up because we couldn't get new cars into the UK because there weren't the components, they couldn't manufacture them. So we've had this big issue and so if demand outstrips supply, then the value goes up because it goes to the highest bidder. And that causes inflation. So not only do we have inflation through people, you know, cost of wages, but we also have inflation through components and then those raw materials going up in terms of pricing as well. So just to give you an example, at its peak, it was costing £20,000 a container load of goods from China. That was then probably about a couple of months down to around about £8,000. But prior to COVID, it was around £5,000. You can see those cost differentials and that ultimately gets passed on to the consumer. So that sort of brought us in then to January this year. And we started to see that interest rates were going to rise because at that point in time, it was just that part of inflation that was causing us an issue. And so the US started to put interest rates up. The UK started to put interest rates up. So why do they do that? They do that to change buying behavior. And the only way they can do that is by hitting you in the pocket. And so the biggest cost for a lot of people within the UK, and why it's usually quite a good method, is that we all have mortgages, or a vast proportion of the population have mortgages. Now, it doesn't have an immediate impact, because a lot of us are on fixed rate mortgages. But as we come off those fixed rate deals, then all of a sudden, the cost of servicing your mortgage and your debt increases. So that takes more of your disposable income, which means that you don't necessarily go out and buy the things that you otherwise might have done. So that takes the heat out of the demand, which means if there's less demand, the price eventually comes down. So had we had a traditional setup and a traditional recession, we would have seen interest rates go up. And back in January, they were anticipating that inflation would have peaked around 7% in April. And we would have then seen that come down again over the course of this last six months. Unfortunately, we weren't anticipating a war in Ukraine. And quite frankly, 
that has completely changed the landscape, not only from you know the, the perspective of relations across the globe, but also in terms of the things that are supplied from those countries and then the demand that has gone through the roof from other countries who provide these services. So, you know, the classic will be gas and oil. That's probably the easiest one to discuss. But Ukraine, obviously create a lot of grain. They also had a big industry in IT and also providing other things for electrical items for cars. So sort of exacerbating that situation on the cars. Russia provides a lot of the world's wood. They also caught a lot of fish for our fish and chip shops. So you might have noticed recently if you bought any fish and chips, the cost has gone up through the roof. Plus economic sanctions. So it goes without saying that obviously the aim is to have an impact on Russia to try and change their behavior. But unfortunately it goes both ways and it does impact us here in the UK and across the rest of the world. So what we've seen is energy costs go through the roof because we're now limited on where we can get our supply from, for our gas and oil. And as we come into the winter months and our demand increases and there's less supply, obviously the price goes up. So where we sit right now, a large proportion of the 10% inflation rate that we currently see is from gas and oil, but we are still seeing an increase in services and goods that is well above the target that the Bank of England would like. And it is likely that when we have the next announcement on interest rates, that we will continue to see them rise for some time. And it is anticipated that we will be in a recession by October or November this year. So that means we would have had contraction in the UK economy for six consecutive months. So hopefully that gives you a good overview and brought you up to sort of where we are today. There's a few things that I want to explore here about mortgages and investments, but just a quick side question. So the energy price cap was recently announced. What do you think that's going to do with inflation? Okay, so two schools of thought, and I'm afraid it might be one of those we have to wait and see. But if we look at it this way, whilst energy price rises were going to hurt everyone quite significantly, that was having the impact as well as interest rate rises of reducing people's demand and spending. So that would have meant that it would have hurt us a lot more financially, but we inflation probably would have come down next year, taking the energy out to one side. Domestic inflation, you know, things we can control would have reduced probably early next year. There is concern that putting a price cap in place has effectively taken away people's major anxiety and fear, and that people may continue to buy and demand may stay. And if that happens, then effectively we will still have higher inflation next year, obviously exacerbated by some of the energy costs. So it's a weird concept. What we might see is inflation rate come down, but that's because of the price cap on the energy. But if we still see domestic inflation, as in those other things we were talking about, demand and we're still buying things, well, the Bank of England will go even harder on their interest rate rises because what that then means is they have to hit people in the pocket in a different way. So at the moment, I think the jury's out. It depends how much this energy price cap and the increases we've seen will have an impact. And also how interest rate rises already come through will have an impact on people's mortgages. We do know that October and April within the mortgage industry are massive months for remortgaging. That included myself. So obviously this October, there's been quite a big increase and there will be a step increase in terms of interest rates for people. So it's one of those difficult ones to, I'm afraid, answer at the moment. But the general consensus is it could just exacerbate inflation for a bit longer. Yeah. I mean, some of the predicted costs for energy were absolutely eye-watering i took things into my own hands old school style and my brother works on a farm and i get free firewood but i have to go and chop it myself so i chopped about two and a half tons of firewood i was feeling really smug and then about a week later they were like yeah energy's price is capped I was like, no. <laughs> but anyway i'm running the wood burner this winter for sure 
So let's talk about mortgages because something that people say, I mean, you need a crystal ball for all of this. No one can predict the future, but we're just kind of talking in general terms. You know, if you need to get your remortgage done in the next sort of six months, sounds like what <laughs> you need to do yours. You know, should you fix? Should you go for a two year, a five year, a 10 year, a variable? So many options. Mm. Where are you with it? Okay, so I'm going to always caveat this and start with the fact that it will be depending on your personal circumstances. Okay, we have to consider your personal circumstances. But if you're talking sort of generically what's going on, first thing to say is if you're going to remortgage, at the present time, you can remortgage up to six months before your remortgage date. So if you want to start considering your options and you're thinking to yourself, look, my mortgage is going to come up from you in February. Well, look, it's probably clear that interest rates are going to be higher in February than they are today. So I think it would be a worthwhile exercise in engaging with a mortgage broker and having a conversation with them about what rate you might be able to fix in it now. If you go on the standard variable rate, you will continue to go up with the Bank of England base rate. It's completely connected. And so you could see the value of your payments really ratcheting up over the course of time. Now, if you fix in, we're in a bit of a weird situation, but this might give you an indication of what the markets think will happen with interest rates. A five-year fixed rate is currently cheaper in some circumstances than a two-year fixed rate. And to say that again, a five-year fixed rate is cheaper than a two-year fixed rate. So basically what they're saying is that this inflation is going to be transitory, it's going to go up, and then it's going to come back down. Is that what you would interpret from that? Absolutely. Now, obviously two years, they think it's going to increase. And so that's why they're baking in those increments at the moment. The five-year is obviously lower. What we can't determine is whether once that two-year peak is over, whether those interest rates will be lower than what you would have been paying on a five-year. And this is why I'm saying it's a very, very difficult one. But the classic situation of, well, what would you prefer, knowing that you have got a fixed cost for five years, and you accept that that is the cost, come what may. And yes, interest rates may go down in the future. But actually, do you know what? It's more important to have security over those fixed costs for you. Or do you want to roll the dice and possibly consider going for a two-year that might cost you a little bit more now with the view that you think rates might be lower in the future. And as I said, it comes down to your personal views and your personal circumstances as to what option is right for you. It also depends on where you are in your purchasing journey, whether it's a first-time buyer or whether it's just a remortgage. I think if you're comfortable in your home and it's a remortgage, well, then you might want to consider possibly a longer-term fix because you just want to understand what your costs will be. And that actually can take a lot of anxiety away from the circumstances to do with your finances because you have a surety over what those costs will be. I'm glad you mentioned that because my personal mortgage history is that I bought a flat in 2009 and at the time a five-year fix was around three percent it was just like this is the cheapest it's ever been I was really tight for money and the cost was just fixed so I fixed it like three percent in 2009 and it was just like interest rates ain't going any lower than three percent that's crazy everyone knows what happens so fast forward five years again I think I fixed it about 1.2 percent and everyone yep. was like no, it's never going lower. And again, you know, <laughs> I just like the financial security. I've long accepted that no one can predict the future. And so it's about matching what's right for your personal circumstances. So again, I fixed it like 1.2 because they were never going lower. And yeah, everyone knows what happens. So I think it's a really good point. You can't predict the future. It's just got to match your personal circumstances. Even though I fixed uh, in 2009 at like 3%, it was the right call for me because it could have gone the other way. And I you know, being honest, I couldn't afford anymore. So yeah. I just knew that for five years, I was locked in and I could focus on learning how to be a doctor rather than sweating about what interest rates were doing. So yeah, that's exactly it. And I think if in two years time, you know, your rates coming up again, you possibly might find yourself thinking, well, what are my options now? Now it could be the rates have dropped. 
Because what we know is that once we've had a recession, they will drop interest rates to try and get growth again, try and get the economy going. So they want people to borrow. They want businesses to borrow. They want people to invest in growing their businesses. And so that's why interest rates will drop. So yeah, it's a really interesting time. What I would say though, is that it's a very fluid market at the moment and rates are increasing at speed. And it's one of those things that actually what we're seeing is, well, look, you know, we might provide you with an illustration that says, well, yes, this is your mortgage rate. But until we've actually got that locked in with an application, that's not guaranteed. And so things will change within 24 hours. Each lender is updating their criteria. They're updating their affordability. And actually, interestingly, we're also seeing a lot of valuations come in lower than what people have, have offered on housing. So I think that's another thing just to highlight that actually what we're starting to see is the housing market topping out on those eye-watering valuations. And so in some ways, the valuations that are coming from mortgage providers are hopefully steering you and guiding you that actually we don't think these properties are worth this level. So we're going to start to see some heat probably come out of the market. Also, like, and again, not advice, and I don't have a crystal ball, as I've just demonstrated by my tales of mortgage woe, is, as you said, a leveraged asset. People borrow money to buy their property in general. So if the cost of borrowing goes up as it is, you could surmise that the cost of the property might need to come down. Not a prediction. I'm sure that will come back to be completely wrong in a year's time. But that's what you're saying, isn't it? You're saying... Interest rates going up, so prices should cool down a bit because it's a leveraged asset. Yeah, they're going to look at affordability, ultimately. So someone's affordability on interest rates at half a percent versus affordability at 3% is different. So they have complicated algorithms in the background that basically alter and change daily. And this is the other thing is, you know, when you're looking at affordability, some people will go right up to their maximum affordability. Now, one week, that might be affordable. But if they change their criteria because interest rates go up fairly quickly, or they now think that interest rates are going to go higher than they first anticipated, they are what we would call stress testing your ability to pay. And one thing that came off the back of the 2008 credit crisis is a far, far greater level of duty of care is probably the best way of putting it on mortgage lenders behalf to make sure that what you take on as a debt is affordable. So I don't know whether any of your listeners can remember there used to be 100% mortgages, sometimes even 130% mortgages. Weird concept. You actually borrowed money on an unsecured loan. Really, really random because the view was, well, property prices will always go up. But a lot of people are still in a negative equity situation from 2008. They have become mortgage prisoners for those very reasons. And so it is very, very difficult. And you know, financial prudence would suggest that you want to make sure you do have some fat within your affordability that you're not completely scrimping and, you know, skinting yourself out. So there is no capacity to deal with any interest rate increases because that, again, just causes more anxiety in terms of your financial position. Yeah, 100%. I mean, leverage is good until you're over leveraged, then it's very bad. I know another thing that everybody always asks me is, you know, there's all this negativity and economic doom and gloom in the world is now a good time to invest. Okay, so if we talk through and look back at what's gone on over the last two and a half years with the investment markets, we've seen two dramatic drops in the investment markets within two and a half years. The first one was COVID, but that bounced back fairly quickly as soon as government intervened. And we then saw a significant increase in the investment markets over the next 12 months, only for that to be dragged down at the beginning of the year when interest rates rose sharply, and then even further with the woes and the ramifications of what's gone on within Ukraine and the Russian war. So as it sits right now, we are at pretty historic lows from sort of the peak of the market to where we are at the bottom. We've seen quite a significant drop. Now, 
no one can determine when the bottom of the market is. You know, if we all knew and we all had crystal ball and knew where the bottom of the market is, we'd all be piling in at that point in time. And then obviously we'd be getting out when the market's at its peak. And unfortunately, that's baffled everyone for years and years. And no one's ever called it right where the bottom of the market is. What we can say safely is that we are in a very low area of the market. Now, that could mean that investment markets actually drop further over the next six months anyone's guess. But having spoken to various different portfolio managers, because we do our own investment sort of webinars to our clients, there is a general view that we are around the bottom somewhere. It's quite a loose way of saying it because we're no one's ever going to say we're near the bottom. But we think we're in the lower echelons of a dip in a market. And normally that is determined by maximum fear for people within the investment market. So do they want to get their money out? At what point do they think I really can't take this pain of seeing this drop any further? And if we get there up there on the fear index, and also we're heading into a recession, and assuming we're hoping that we're going to come through a recession in the normal way, then we would sincerely hope that over the sort of next six to 12 months, we would start to see some form of a recovery within the investment markets. It's important to say that investment markets are forward-looking. And so invariably, where we are right now is where we will be experiencing pain as an economy and a country over the coming three to six months. And that sort of ties in with the fact that we'll be in a recession sort of October, November, December. Again, having spoken to various portfolio managers, their view is that the US are going through what would be classified a traditional recession. The reason they classify it as a traditional recession is that they can see that interest rates are rising, inflation will be coming under control, and then the indicators are that possibly interest rates might start to fall middle of next year. If that happens, then the US will start to march forward with its growth. And that's where a lot of people have their money invested. That's where a lot of tech businesses are. And that's probably where we're going to see a lot of gains over the coming years. Now, why do they believe the US is in a technical recession or a traditional recession, it's because actually they have control over their energy, which is vastly different to us here in the UK and Europe. So as they have control over their energy, we know that inflation will cap out at some point. In the UK and Europe, we're just seeing that exponentially increasing, which is why a lot of governments within Europe have had to intervene with price caps. So assuming that happens and interest rates start to come down next year, then we should Assuming there are no other black swan events or situations out of left field that, that we're not aware of, we should hope to see a recovery. I say hope, but the indicators would suggest we will. So in answering your question, is now a good time to invest? It could be, absolutely. And I think we've obviously been advocates when we've talked about investments in the past of investing on a regular basis, just getting on that journey. And I think what that highlights is the advantages of something called pound cost averaging, which I'm sure has been covered in you know, many podcasts and blogs that you've written. So investing on a regular basis means that you're not exposing all your capital in one hit to the vagaries of the market. But what you are able to do is take advantage of these dips because effectively you buy things cheaper month on month. And then when the markets do turn, and it's a question of when, not if, it's about time though, that's the biggest key here, then you will start to see the gains come from those regular savings and you should start to see that pound cost averaging really work in your favour because you've been able to buy in the dip and then when the markets come back up, you'll start to take advantage of those big increases that come through. Hope that answers your question. It definitely does. I think pound cost averaging, great way to get into the market. Definitely check that out. I mean, dollar cost averaging gets you a better answer on Google, but just replace dollar with pound and you'll get the idea. <laughs> I think like there's a few key sort of skills that I find useful as an investor. And the number one is just to realize that no one, with all due respect to present guests, can predict the future. It's just a fact. I know that you believe that, Mike. And so once you realize that no one can predict the future, then you've got to think, well, when is the best time to invest? And the best time to invest 
is like planting a tree. It was 10 years ago. Like, don't want to be unfair or 15 years ago, because <laughs> as you said, Mike, like time is the major driver of returns here, compounding returns over time, compound interest, seventh wonder of the world. And so I just, yeah, once you've accepted that you can't predict the future and that you can't time the market, nobody can reliably time the market. You know, if the professionals can't time the market, what makes you think as a doctor that you can? Once you accept that, you just buy a low cost, well diversified portfolio, dollar cost average into it, or sorry, excuse me, pound cost average into it. And don't panic sell, don't do anything crazy. You just said that the markets are way down. I haven't actually logged in to check my portfolio for absolutely ages. And I was thinking about doing it just then, but I'm not going to because I'm in this for another 20 years. I'm not going to change anything. I'm still investing regularly every month. I'm not changing my plan. It's well set and it's still going on. So why would I even look at it? And if I look at it, oh, I might get a bit scared. So I'm just not looking at it. And I just keep piling in every month because no one can predict the future. But, you know, we might be at the bottom. You're right. We might go lower, but it's not going to change what I do because I've got a 20 year time frame. And probably only really affects people who are looking to draw down a pension or something in the next couple of years. I mean, they're in a tricky spot if they've got a private pension. And if that doesn't make you realize the benefit of the NHS pension, which is a guaranteed index linked inflation proof income for life, then nothing will because yeah, drawing down your pension now, you do need to predict the future a bit there, don't you? Couldn't agree more. And I think it's as you get closer to your retirement plans or your the time you want to use these funds then you need to start focusing on you know, how you preserve those assets. And so it's a completely different conversation when you come into the position of drawdown or actually drawing on these funds. When you're in your accumulation phase, you're absolutely right. You, know, you just need to get started in investing. You need to be in it for the longer term. You need to accept that there will be highs and lows. But the general trajectory, as from history, and obviously that's not a future guide to performance, have shown that actually you will benefit over the longer term. And it's going through these highs and lows that actually ultimately provide you with that extra growth as well over the course of time. So yeah, no one knows when the bottom is. We just sincerely hope it's not too far off. Exactly. And I always just think about the stock market. If you zoom out on an index of any large stock market, let's say the S&P 500, is a zoom out onto a sort of 10, 15 year time frame. The graph is up and to the right. Okay. But if you zoom in on a day or week level, there's some scary drops, you know, but if in doubt, just zoom out, okay? If you're in it for 10 years, don't look at the day chart. Don't look at the week chart. It's irrelevant. Just look at the 10-year chart. It looks a bit like the Medics Money podcast listener chart. It's up and to the right strongly, but occasionally there's a bit of a dip and then it goes back up again. So, you know, you've got lots of doctor clients, Mike. What kind of things are you sort of telling them and uh, give us a sort of summary of where we're at. Okay. Well, I think as with all these things is forewarned is forearmed. And I think it's about preparing and making sure you're ahead rather than being in a position where you're having to say, try and remortgage within a month of your remortgage date. Then you're under pressure. Rates possibly could be higher. I think it's probably one of those things. If you think your interest rate is going to change in the very near future, start thinking about it now, start making that contact. And it would be worth considering whether you can fix it now or whether you think actually maybe you want to consider a tracker or a variable. Again, it comes down to your personal circumstances, but I think just actually taking some action now will mean at least your understanding of what your position might be. And therefore it might not be a big shock to you in sort of the next six months time. So that's probably the first point. It will give you assurances over what your finances will look like. And then in terms of sort of investing, obviously, if you haven't started investing, well, as we've always suggested, 
just getting started is the best option for you and get cracking with that. If you are invested, then it's one of those things. These are the vagaries of the stock market. They do go up, they do go down. And if you're in it for the longer term, then, you know, hopefully then you will benefit from that. But, you know, if you have concerns and you have a financial advisor, then that's what they're there for. Have the conversation, discuss your portfolio with them, and hopefully they'll be able to allay your fears and uh, give you some comfort. Definitely. I think when the market's going up and everything's going rosy, the life of a financial advisor is relatively tranquil. And this kind of scenario that we're in now is where you lot earn your money, in my opinion, because if your financial advisor can just give you the right advice and stop you from panic selling or panic buying or panicking in general, that is where, in my view, people like Mike earn their money. And yeah, absolutely. Great summary. Great to have you back. If you want to get started with investing, I mean, DIY, episode 16, right? Check it out. Superb. Thanks for having me, Tommy. No problem. Let's not leave it as long again, but I know you're a busy guy. Take care, Mike. Take care. Cheers. <laughs>